In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Your host here, Max Wardell, joined today by the speed guy, Lee Taft. Lee Taft is all over social media with content on speed and agility. He's got a master's of science in sports coaching from the United States Sports Association, or Academy, sorry, Academy. He runs the Lee Taft Speed Academy. He's got multiple certifications. I actually have one up on my wall, but you can't probably can't see it. It's above the screen here. So welcome to the podcast here, Lee. Thanks, Max. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. I, I love the, the information you share. Thank you very much. Likewise. When we're talking about speed and agility, we're always thinking about how we can make our athletes better on the field and how we can transfer different training techniques and different things we're going to teach them from an exercise standpoint, from a training standpoint to the field. And that's what I really, when I noticed your course online, I took your course, it was kind of during that downtime when everyone was just laying around yeah. during COVID. And, and that was one thing I really picked up. It's like everything sports specific, everything has some way where either the athlete is doing something that actually occurs in sport or they're doing an activity that replicates um, maybe psychologically some of the same things they're doing in sport and you're putting a ball in their hands, you're doing things that in an athlete's mind will replicate sport as well. So I thought it was very, uh, I guess, intriguing, but also um, industrious and it was something that was very innovative to me because this was something that a lot of people have tried to do with different exercises, they've tried to do with different agility training where they've had athletes do different things, and a lot of times, unfortunately, you don't see the carryover yeah. to the field when athletes get out there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I appreciate you mentioning that, and absolutely. And, and the real cool thing about, uh, I guess we could say multi-directional speed or specific type speed or even general speed is there's really not a bias when it comes to the athlete doesn't matter the age you're working with, the ability level. Speed is a product of uh, accomplishing a task based on what they read. So if we're playing baseball or if we're playing softball and a ball gets hit in my direction and it happens to be a kind of like a, you know, a, maybe a broken bat, you know, hit where I'm expecting the thing to come off really hard, but it ends up just kind of dribbling like a bunt. Well, I read that. I don't overthink footwork. I just attack the ball. I just go to the ball with my footwork. If I'm like a shortstop, second base, third base, whatever, I go and I attack. As where if we take the other components of athleticism, like strength training or conditioning, those are very thought out movement patterns. If you're trying to help a baseball player maybe rehab a shoulder or something, there's a, there's a very distinct process that you're going to go through. Uh, position, postures, you know, range of motion to protect them. Movement is just very organic. It's something that we learn from the minute we develop. And what's happened is over time is we've tried to make it kind of get put into this little this little category of we have to do exactly this. And I think that's what hurts a lot of coaches when they try to get transferred to, to the field or to a court or to a, you know, an ice rink as we try to make it, we try to make it 
uh, uh, mimic like a particular drill that we want to do versus understanding what pure movement is it about. And that's the cool thing with like baseball. It's so fast. It's so quick. You don't have time to think about your footwork. You simply react, and then we work on the aspects that help that particular footwork get better. So maybe arm action, maybe leg action, maybe body position. But once the athlete moves, it's gone. It's all. It's over. So you don't have a lot of time to make corrections. It seems like you take a similar approach to what I actually take when I'm working with throwing mechanics, and that you're giving an athlete the pathway to a certain movement. You're providing them with the skill, and then you're utilizing various other training techniques that are reactive, like you said, to get them to implement that in a more pressurized or time-pressurized situation. Yeah. It's more like the field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and what's the best assessment for any of us to see what an athlete offers from a movement standpoint is to let them move, right? Put them in a situation, let them move. So in my case, a lot of times my assessments are based on what I call a reactive tier system, and I can control it, but it's still a reaction. So what happens is I get to actually see the athlete move and what strategies they choose to move with. You would do that with pitching, right? You're going to at some point get them warmed up, let them throw at whatever miles per hour you want them to throw. But still, they're going to they're going to show you what their strategies are, whether they're good, bad, indifferent, whatever. They're going to show you. So when I get that information, now that makes it really easy for me to add a corrective or a drill to help improve that pattern. And I think that's oftentimes where we miss out on helping athletes have context as to why the drill matters is because we go straight to a drill that doesn't resonate with the athlete's movement system. If I let them just react, so take an infielder, if I just throw a ball in a direction or I point in a direction, I'm going to get to see how they move. And if I don't like their strategy and I think there might be a better, more efficient way, now I know exactly where to go with it. So I think that's really important to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're programming for speed and agility, and as you call it, multi-directional speed, which is really the speed of sport, you have to be able to move in all directions, really at, at any time. How do you program that from the standpoint of you've noticed certain movements that you don't like as much as other movements, or they don't do this as well as you'd like to see it, or maybe their pathway to get to the ball here when it's dropped in a lateral direction forward, they're not as efficient. They just don't move as well. Versus another another movement, maybe they, maybe they move really well in a posterior direction. How do you program that? Because I know a lot of times, especially in speed and agility training, we're kind of working on everything because we have a large group of kids or we're doing a camp or that sort of thing. How do you give them either a home program or work on them, you know, one-on-one -on -one in, in a time period during the camp or how do you go about that? Yeah, yeah, great question. And I think this is really, really important. And I think this is an area that many young coaches struggle with when they have to deal with a team or a camp setting where there might be 30, 40, 50 athletes or more. The critical thing that you want to do is understand you can only expose the athlete's mind to so much information before they're just not going to be able to they're not going to be able to absorb it. So what I like to do is I have seven movement patterns that I base most of my movements off. Okay, so it could be linear sprint, linear acceleration, lateral shuffle, lateral run, 
It could be a back pedal, a hip turn, those are my retreating patterns, or it could be a jump. We have all kinds of variations of those. So when I'm in a situation where I'm going to program specific movements, I will typically do one to maybe two skills or movement patterns. And then I have multiple variations or extensions of those patterns. And just to give context to the listeners, let's say we're working on infielders be able, being able to attack on an angle, like 45-degree angle to go and field a ball. And it could be in any direction. We're going to give that skill, we're going to watch a move, okay? And then what we're going to do is we're going to start putting in variations of that, or, or they could be called regressions, to help the athlete display that movement better. So here's a real easy example. If I notice the athletes are not driving forward, meaning they're not pushing down and away from the direction they want to go really well, like a track athlete coming out of blocks. They push backward so they can go forward, right? If I see an issue with that, I will use a form of resistance, a lot of times just a band. So when I do even large camps, I might have 20 bands, real inexpensive, just looped bands, and the partners will work together. And now what I'm doing is I'm, I'm working on them getting more organic force production into the ground to go in the direction they want to go. It's a very simple way to program it. And then we'll add other drills to that exact same skill. But the, the key to this is, Max, is the athletes are hearing the same cues, they're getting very similar feedback, and they're working on the same pattern, even though I've got a little bit of variation, because what that does is when the training session's over, we usually have small wins to big wins. It could be a big win for the day, but at least we get little wins. As where if I said, we're going to do five or six different skills today, the athletes leave and they're like, I'm not quite sure what I learned today. I did a lot of stuff, but I don't know what I really learned. As where if I focused on that angular acceleration that's really important for infielders and even outfielders, they're going to learn something because we're going to keep giving variations of that one specific skill. And then maybe I'll do another skill that can have some carryover as well. It becomes important when you go into the actual preparation to throw when you're talking about a forward step on a crow hop, a backward step on a crow hop, a shuffle step. And thinking about this, really after I went through your certification program, I'm thinking about how can I make this as specific as possible but also give the athletes the best possible opportunity to be able to display agility and get the ball out of their hand as fast as they can as well as produce as much power as they can. And I think the answer actually comes down to, in my mind, you have to be able to do a crow hop where you step, and for everyone listening at home, I'm talking about the back foot. Does the back foot step behind? Does it shuffle too? Does it step in front? I'm thinking you have to be able to do all three of those things based on the time demands of the activity, but also based on the direction that the ball's taking you. So if the ball's taking you towards your throwing side, you're going to maybe have to step behind to throw it back towards your glove side or vice versa. But then the question comes up, which one can you produce more power in? And my assumption is with the step behind crow hop, you're going to be able to produce more power. But I think you have to be able to train all three of them. And that's talking about variability, too, in movement. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more because even if you 
slowed the training session of that particular crow hop to a throw down as slow as you can. There's never going to be one rep that's going to be exactly like another rep. We know this. It just, there's just too much variation that occurs, it's too much sequencing that changes, too much summation that changes. And we're talking about sometimes indistinguishable uh, changes. Like we might not really see it, but it's there. So the more variation you can give the athlete, the better they are, not only in the ability to pull off that skill or that execution of that task, fielding a ball, throwing it, maybe turning a double play or whatever, but they also are going to be more equipped under pressure because they have the ability to step behind, to step short, to step big, to step forward on an angle, maybe, maybe not even using their glove and barehanding it and then having to make a throw. The more options they have available, the better they are when pressure's the highest because their body's been there, memories can be recalled, and all the brain has to do is recognize the pattern. It doesn't have to have distinct sequences. It just has to recognize the pattern. So we do a disservice to athletes when we don't add variability to it because ultimately they're going to get in the game and it's never perfect as we've trained it in our, in our kind of sterile environment, right? Right. And that, that kind of brings up another point, which is agility as a whole or speed as a whole is also kind of a global, uh, it's a global skill. You talk about their skills inside of it, but it's also a skill in and of itself to be able to react to certain things on the field, react to this and react to that, and be able to move in an efficient manner because you can't prepare for every scenario. And that's why if you have these big skills, these bigger attributes in your movement, you're going to be more successful. Yeah, yeah, that, that's huge. And that's, that's critical when we start talking about youth development, right? Because I, I started my career as a phys ed teacher. So I worked with kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. So when I had young kids or when I worked with youth programs in sport, it's really critical that they have that ability to be able to adapt to different situations. And as we, we mentioned a moment ago, the brain recognizes patterns. It doesn't always recognize exact movements, and that's not how it stored it, because if it did, we'd have so much stored information, eventually we'd probably run out of space. It just, it just stores the pattern. And so as an athlete gets better, so if you took a, if you took a, a freshman high school baseball player and compared him to his freshman year going into college or compared him if he made it to his rookie year in the major leagues, he's talented at all three levels, but his ability to adapt to different environments because he's had more exposure to greater speeds, to greater intensities, to greater depths, it changes and it adapts. They have to adapt to that. So to your point, the more their agility and their, their quickness and their reactivity can have a larger magnitude, the better <laughs> off they are. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up that you were a phys ed teacher initially. Go through your pathway, if you would, please, because I think it's 
rather interesting that you went through, you went into physical education, you became a phys ed teacher, and then you expanded it. Obviously, you were coaching at the time, but you've expanded it into these speed academies, and you've actually, from my understanding, left the uh, educational setting, the school setting. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I, I started my career in the 80s as a phys ed teacher, and then while I was teaching, I was also coaching football, basketball, and I coached track, and I was also kind of the de facto strength coach for the athletes because nobody did it and they, they kind of knew I was involved in that. So started doing that. A couple of years into my career, I had an opportunity to go to the United States Sports Academy in, in Alabama and pursue my master's. And, I, and it, that was just what I wanted to do at that time. So from there, I ended up going to uh, Boletary's Tennis Academy, which everybody knows now as IMG. But when I was there, it was just a tennis academy and I was a full-time strength coach with them uh, while I was doing my mentorship. And then I left there to continue the performance world, strength and conditioning. And I kind of got involved in a couple businesses. And then eventually I went back to my home state in New York and I opened up my first speed academy in 1994. And the reason I mentioned physical education is because when I opened my first business, everybody around me that did any kind of training personal training or whatever, it was pretty much one-on-one -on -one training or very, very small groups. Well, I was most comfortable with groups, like teams. Give me a team. I feel more comfortable with a team than I do with one-on-one. -on -one. So way back then, we created a model of about 10 to 12 athletes per session. We charged a much lower rate so they could afford it easier, but we were still doing well because we had large groups. And so that was the model over the years. I ended up having five speed academies uh, as we moved around. And the, the physical education background prepared me to not only be able to manage large groups, but to be able to understand um, programming, uh, uh, writing a lesson plan, being organized, dealing with situations of discipline. So my speed academies, even though they were a business, we treated it very much like they were, you know, in physical education. This is how we did it. It was very structured, very organized, and we were able to teach and progress them through it. So, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. I did go back into teaching for about five, six more years, but at the exact same time, I had my Speed Academy running. So I was doing both full-time because I was – weekends were full-time Speed Academy, and then in the evenings after I coached, I probably did – probably four more hours of training athletes. So it was, a, it was a lot of work for several years there. Yeah, no kidding. It seems like something that you could do, though, because all the athletes are in school. So yeah. it's like, well, they're in school, you're in school, yep. and then you're out. It's just a ton of hours on your part. Absolutely. It would definitely give you an advantage that you then have the knowledge of how schools work. And I, my dad was an educator uh, and administrator for a high school, any coach and things like that. So he's always talking to me about that. It's like getting into the schools, getting into the schools. And getting, getting your certification or your, um, the, your students in your certification program, some of the knowledge on how you go about marketing the schools was really intriguing to me because you had some really good strategies. Like, okay, you want to get in at these types of meetings. You want to talk about these types of things. And I think for anybody who's interested in um, – growing their growing their business that's that's some invaluable knowledge that most people are never exposed to or 
don't even think about. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that, I, I really appreciate you mentioning that because I see so many performance facilities struggling to get numbers, but yet they've got like 10 high schools within a, you know, a short radius around them, and they're not taking advantage of the opportunities there. Not only high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, but you've got AAU travel teams, you've got all different kinds of clubs and YMCAs. There's so many opportunities out there. And what you have to be able to be willing to do is you've got to be able to reach out to influential people in those schools. It, it could be the athletic director, but they're pretty tough to... I grew up like you. My father was in education and coaching and stuff for 44 years. And so my brothers, my sisters, all of us were in education. So I grew up around it. And what I started to do was I would reach out to maybe the head football coach or maybe the head soccer or baseball coach who was pretty influential. And I would ask them questions. I didn't go there pounding my chest saying, hey, I got all the answers. I can make you better. That puts up a wall. What I did is I said, you know, I've got these ideas. I've been watching your program for a couple of years, and I absolutely love what you do. Do you mind if I pick your brain maybe for 10, 15 minutes? And they usually love sharing with younger coaches. And at the time, I was younger than most of these people I'm reaching out to. But even now, as somebody that's older than them, that's my approach. So now I get the chance to sit with them. And then as they start asking me questions about my role, now it becomes apparent to them that I know what I'm doing. But it would never happen if I go in there and I'm just trying to market to them the whole time. I'm trying to actually ask for help. And that's how you get in a lot of times. So I would do these marketing clinics at these schools that were completely free. And I'd invite coaches and athletes. And by the very first one I did, Max, I had 120 athletes and 30 coaches. Well, from that, I ended up wow. probably <laughs> signing up at least 12 to 15 athletes who joined my facility. I mean, that's a lot of athletes at one time who were paying 450 bucks right off the bat. So that I would go to all the schools around me and use the same approach. And so I always had a lot of athletes coming down my pipeline because I would routinely reach out. And I have a lot of different techniques that I use to get in. But the biggest thing is, is you ask for help and then you get in and now you have a relationship with those coaches versus uh, repelling them with an over obnoxious approach, which I see a lot of trying to say, I've got all the answers. You need me. Most coaches are like, who the hell are you? I don't need you. And then you end up without a chance. So that's always been my approach, and it's worked really, really well. And how many athletes do you think you need to keep your speed facility running? Like, here's the minimum number of athletes that, that you really need to keep a facility like this going. Yeah, and, of course, it's going to depend on all of your costs. Like, the, the last – big place that I had. I paid about $4,000 a month rent, okay? So, and I had staff. I had, you know, I was paying staff and I had a lot. So it was, it was a decent amount of income per month I had to come up with. If we kept at 75 athletes, we were paying all our bills and had a little extra money. So if we had 75 athletes, now people are gonna say, oh my gosh, that's, you know, that's a lot of athletes. But see, we trained in groups, and because this, and this is going to start opening up the minds of a lot of the listeners who have facilities and work with athletes. 
We always think, let's go after the baseball, the football, the basketball guys. Great, go after them. But I also went after the swimmers, the cheerleaders, the, the cross-country athletes. I went after um, mountain climbers. I went after triathletes. I went after all the athletes that people don't think about, skiers. I had a whole ton of skiers. So I went after all these other athletes that would, you know, if I picked up 20, 25 of those athletes, and I'm now getting still the track athlete, the basketball athlete, boys, girls, baseball, softball, you know, getting your football athletes. What happens is you don't have to get a lot from each school in each sport. If I can get three athletes in each of those sports, and I have about 10 athletes or 10 schools around me, it's actually very, really easy to get 75 athletes. That was no problem. Plus, you've got your adult training that you're going to do. And the other thing is that I did, and this is really, really important, is I would go to booster clubs. So I would go to the school booster clubs and the parent-teacher organizations. I would go to them and say, hey, how would you guys like to do a clinic together? You guys can... You know, I'll give you 75% of the income. Just help me pay for maybe some of my travel or whatever. But I'll come in and I'll do a clinic. So they're in charge of all the students and all the athletes. So now I'm getting in front of all those students and athletes. Even if I didn't make a dime, I'm getting in front of all these kids. And then that's how I would sell my programs. And next thing you know, I'm picking up 10, 12 at a pop at all these different schools doing that. So to get 75 athletes, it's really not that hard it's just you have to look at all the possibilities out there and then go get them. And then put it on your calendar. Know the starts of seasons. Know when there's parents meeting, coaches meetings. And I would ask if, hey, do you need help? Do you need somebody maybe to talk on flexibility or warm-up or nutrition? And they invite me in. I talk for five minutes, but now I'm in front of all these people. And that's, that's how you got to do it. you got to be willing to, to get out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. In terms of the actual training that you're doing with athletes, are they generally coming in for 45 minutes, an hour block? How do you, how do you organize it from that standpoint? Yeah, yeah. So, so the business model that I used, and, and it would be different when I'm coaching athletes, the sport team, but when I'm, when I'm training for the business, we roughly would go an hour. Now, I have done programs longer than that, but typically it's an hour. And so on the hour, every group's coming in. And what we'll do is we have our time slot, maybe 10 minutes for a warm-up preparation period. Then we're going to go into some kind of explosive ballistic power. It could be jumping, could be throwing. Then we do our speed and agility. Then we go into our strength training. And then typically strength training, it's very segmented into like three to four lifts only. Sometimes we'll superset with those. And then if we're going to condition, if we're going to have some kind of uh, maybe energy system training with slide boards or whatever it may be, we'll do that at the end if that's programmed for that time. Uh, but that's a basic outline of it. And what it did, and this is the important thing, is it not only kept me organized, but my staff, my interns, it was very easy to get them into that system and to be able to follow it. As where if I just did things off the top of my head, oh, let's do this today, or hey, why don't we do this today? I can't really build a system. I can't build something that's reproducible. And if I were sick and couldn't be there, 
my staff wouldn't know what to do. So it was just very well organized in, in terms of how we ran it, and it was easy to reproduce. So anytime I opened up another facility or we moved, that was it. We just plugged it in and went, went through that system. Yeah, that's basically what you need is you need something that's reproducible. Yeah. I got to say, Lee, I think you like to take risks. You went from a job where you had a really <laughs> secure job to kind of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. and you know what? I, when I left, the, the second time when I got into education, what I struggled with with education is the lack of discipline that many administrators started to go through. Now, my, my dad was, was my principal way back, but he was... He was an iron fist. He was tough. Later on, when, when I was in it, there were a lot of principals that didn't allow discipline very well. So I started to struggle with that. So we had just built a new house, and we had two little girls. Both, both of them were around five. One was around three and a half, six in that range. And I came home one day, and I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to resign at the end of the year. And I went full-time into the Speed Academy again. I was training still, but I had about 40 athletes at the time. When I decided to go full-time, we, we went right up to about 150 athletes. So I had no oh, problem wow. replacing and increasing my revenue, my income. And I was always the type that I know I can work. I know I can get a job. I've worked at golf courses, mowing lawns. I've done. So that was never my issue. It was just making sure that I had my ducks in a row so that when I did take the leap, I was in it full board. And I was always good at marketing, just organic marketing. So I knew I could get athletes or adults or whatever. So, yeah. So I'm not afraid to jump in with both feet. It's kind of what you need, though, especially if you're going <laughs> to open your own place. Yeah. And it's funny. It's the, uh, the risk-taking kind of reactive thing, very similar to speed training. Yeah, so. There you go. Exactly. You've taken a lot of study under kind of your own control and that you've done a lot of independent study. You've done a lot of other courses and educational pursuits. How has that kind of shaped your approach? Because I would say that your approach is unique. Um, how, how have these other educational avenues that you've taken? I know you've done some study with the Gray Institute. I know you did some stuff with uh, uh, Paul Check's Institute. Yep. So how has that stuff shaped kind of your overall approach? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I, I love this question because the way I am, even as a sport coach, like when I've been a head basketball or head football or head track coach or whatever sport I've coached, and in, in, in especially in my performance business world, I, 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 when I have a need, there's something that i got to get better at I find who's good at that and who's offering something, and then I go attack it. So way back, um, I think it was 99, something like that. It was actually in the more mid-90s. I started learning about Paul Check and just some of the stuff he was doing. And so I, I think it was 99 when I went out and I did an internship with him for like 11 days in one of his courses. And it, there was a need that I, I had to fill. And so I went to him because I wanted to understand more about in-depth assessments and approach his approach to doing things. So I saved money, put it aside, and then I dove in and I went. 
And then same thing with Gary Gray. What I wanted to learn from Gary's program, the gift uh, uh, program, was I wanted to understand the foot and the ankle and its interaction with multi-directional speed change of direction. That was my goal. But of course, when I went there, I learned 10 times more than that with all this stuff. So anytime I've done any of that stuff, when I wanted to get into more speaking and more consulting, I went to a guy named James Malinchek, who was uh, uh, excellent at speaking. He had what's called a speaker's boot camp. And I, I joined his program actually for two, three years. And I was in his mastermind groups. And I, that's, I learned. So I'm the type that there's something I want to get better at. I find the person and I attack it and I go after it. And that's, I think, what you have to do if you want to be good at things. And I did the same thing when I was like a high school coach of uh, football or basketball. I remember I used to go down and watch the Giants practice when they would be at Albany State. I would go twice a day. And I would go down and I would follow the coaches around from behind the fence. And I would have my head over just listening like everything they said. And I'm taking notes. And not that my high school kids could do everything the Giants could do, but we could organize the way those coaches had things down to the second. And that's what I took back to my program. So, and I think that if you want to be good at it, don't try to create things that are, uh, you know, that are already done really well by somebody else. Just take it into your system and adapt it and change it to fit your system. And that's what I've tried to do. You've taken this success manifesto of learning from the experts in various areas and formed it into your approach and made yourself the expert in your area. What would you say is really your natural talent? Obviously, you're a guy who's very quick and fast yourself, and I'm sure a lot of that's because you're training it all the time yeah. and teaching it all the time even now. What would you say is your natural talents in this that maybe you didn't have to learn or pick up from another expert? Yeah. Just curious. Yeah, you know what's funny is uh, for some reason, I always had really good vision when it came to movement. Like even before when I was in college and before I even understood anything about anatomy or, you know, I took anatomy in college and all that stuff, but I didn't really understand it. I just could memorize the stuff. I could, I could see movement really, really well. Like I could see the movement and I could quickly understand. Like I would say to people next to me, I'm like, oh, see that how they did it? Like, no, I don't see that. I'm like right here. This is, see how the foot caused this part of the body to rotate or whatever when they change direction? People couldn't, I, I just could see it. And the thing is, Max, I didn't always know what I was seeing. Like I didn't understand the intricacies of it. I just knew systematically there was something wrong or something right about it. And then as I started to discover more about biomechanics and physics and pressure and how we move, then it started to make, I could, I could kind of put two and two together and it made sense to me. And I was never taught that. I just naturally saw things. Even like when I work with basketball shooters, like jump shots, um, I could just see it. Like I could see things not going right or mechanically not there. And I think my father was like that. He was, you know, he was much more, he, he, was, uh, he was teaching in the 40s, just to give you an idea. Like he was actually a physical education and a performance instructor in World War II. So... Oh, wow. By the time I started learning from him, he was much older, but 
he was like that. He could see things really well. And I think it's just genetically, I just picked up that, that one important gene from him. And it, it's really helped me a lot over the years. I'm kind of the same way in that I can see how things are going to move yeah. based on how another thing moves, thinking in my mind about kind of the chain reaction type of things. But I really had to train my eyes to be able to pick up movements. And I remember my mentor, Ed, and he had been doing it for years, so I don't know how natural it was for him or how much he had taught himself. But he could just watch this throw and pick up 10 things that I had to slow it down on the video. And after doing it for a long time, I developed the same sense. And it, it's really like if you're doing the qualitative side of things, the qualitative biomechanics, which is what I say you really need in the clinical setting to be able to look at a movement, tell what needs to be fixed, and do it quickly. Because we can have all these tests and measures. We can have all this um, technology, and it's all great. It's going to give us the research that we need that's going to better guide our uh, instruction. It's a great measure of progress, especially with our higher-level athletes. But you still need to be able to look at the movement say what what's going wrong here or what could be improved and then be able to adjust on the fly yeah. for those movements. Oh yeah, and you know, this is how I used to help my staff and my interns because they couldn't figure it out. Like they couldn't see what I was seeing and I used to tell them, I'm like, everything we do as an athlete, there's a model. There's a model to it, okay? So whether it's running, skipping, backpedaling, changing, there is a model. There's variations in the model, but there's a basic model. So like Max, I've seen you on film break down pitchers. So when you're working with young pitchers and correcting, and I can see you seeing it. Like I can tell you see it because you pick things out that other people wouldn't have picked out right off. So, you, but you have a model that's working in your brain. And when that athlete is outside the model, there it is. You can, you can immediately tell a good thing or a bad thing that's occurring. Well, multi-directional speed to me is the same way. Before the athlete is even going into their break or making a movement, so like an infielder, when they go to accelerate out of the stance the minute they see the ball in a direction, I can tell what they should be doing even before they do it. And then if they don't hit those marks, I'm like, okay, why, why was there an issue? Because it might have just been a mistake, a slip, a faulty read. It's not necessarily a biomechanical deficit. It just means that was a bad rep. Okay, that was just a bad rep. So we have to identify that. But if we see consistencies in uh, less than efficient movement, now we can say, okay, they're lacking force production. They just can't hit the angles of force production because they don't have enough force to give. And so it changes. That's what we see with young kids, right? So a young kid trying to learn how to pitch is going to be different than a college athlete that can throw 91, right? It's, it's all based on here's the model. Now, what areas can disrupt that model? And if we know that ahead of time, it's easier to, to kind of depict what they're doing. There's a large push nowadays that Athletes have to be able to solve their problems. They have to be able to do things in an autonomous manner. And a lot of a lot of the stuff that we're doing now is giving athletes the tools where they can actually correct or work on these things or improve their uh, flexibility or mobility or whatever. But this is really a testimonial to you still do need a coach. And if you're working on speed and agility training, there's a lot you can do on your own. But 
you're going to improve a lot more if somebody employed someone like yourself. And I think the same thing goes for any number of athletic endeavors. How do you get your coaches to see that model, or how do you, over time, get them to improve that the the model in their head so that when they watch these athletes, they're just like you or clo- as close as they possibly can be to picking out those things quickly. Yeah, yeah, and and so so um, I'm at a point now where I can see a couple movements and I can tell what's going on through head to toe for the most part just because I understand. I understand like the forces that are going on and what can cause a bad movement. So when I start with my, my younger coaches is it's always starting with a segment first. So maybe we're just looking at foot and ankle position and lower body position to create that force production or reduction, whatever it is they're doing. So once they start to get that, then we can start to add, well, this is how the upper body can influence a great lower body. So we might have a perfect plant, but they move slow and it had nothing to do with the foot plant. It had everything to do with the upper body, maybe got out of position. So now all that force is then dissipated because of a bad upper body position. So we start to break it down piece by piece. And here's the other part that I think is really important for coaches to understand. What are some of the potential compensations we see? And this is why your point of saying everybody needs a coach at some point is really important because we've seen like these kids growing up in the, in the sandlot, never having a coach, but they become really good players. Or on the basketball court in Rutgers Park, they never really had a coach, but they become good players. But they develop compensations. And because they're a good athlete, they, they compensate their way to success, but that eventually leads to injury, uh, maybe some other faulty pattern down the road. So a quality coach can say, yeah, you did. You accomplished it. You made the play, but that's going to lead to a problem because you're compensating with your hip in that position or your elbow there or your foot is turned out when it should be perpendicular to the direction that you want to change directions. That's when the coaching comes in. So if I can show my staff, here's the potential compensations, here's the model. If those two are getting further from each other, that's not a good thing. We got to bring them closer together so that we can make quick fixes and then teach the athlete what they should be feeling. And it's important that you do have that knowledge of individual assessment and being able to look at an athlete and actually do a screen or an evaluation. But equally to that is, I think, a great point you brought up, which is you can watch the movement and say, I can tell what's going on head to toe. I can tell that there's this going on, or if I make this little change, this can happen. And I think that's one of the most interesting things for some of the guys who work for me and when we have an intern in is that, I use a lot of pre-positioning in the throw, so I'll put somebody in the position that I want them to be in at a certain phase of the throw and have them initiate the throw from there, and we'll teach them that, and we'll teach them that, and teach them that, and then we'll eventually have them initiate through that position, which is more difficult to do um, in what you do, I believe, but you use a lot of that as well, where you'll put somebody in a similar position and then have them go from right there. And a lot of times, just in their start position, you can 
already tell how they're going to move if you have that experience and have seen it thousands of times. Or you already know, like, this athlete's in this position, their elbow's a little low, and they're a little too externally rotated or too supinated. They're going to either do this or that in the throw, and you can actually kind of perceive the future of what they're going to do. And a lot of times I'll, I'll just let them go because I want to see if they actually do end up doing that. But little tiny changes can influence the whole movement in the same way that improving a little bit of you know ankle flexibility can allow that that athlete to get into a better drive in their acceleration and sprinting exactly and that's something that i don't know i'm I'm wondering what you think is it something that just comes with experience you got to see it thousands of times is that something you think you can teach and kind of expedite that process for those individuals yeah you can if you go to the point of getting them to understand why position and posture influences function. This is why. Once they get that, they understand it. And let, this would be really good for your, your listeners because this is very baseball-oriented. Uh, so let's say we're breaking down stealing first base, or stealing second base, get, taking a lead off first base, and we're getting ready to steal. And let's say they're in, a, they're in a stationary stance. It's not a secondary lead where they're kind of walking their way out. So they get in their athletic stance. One of the first things I try to get my coaches to look at when we're doing this, and this is an area that a lot, like some professional teams have brought me in and, and colleges I've worked, I've worked with on specifically getting a better jump. If we look at the width of their stance and we correlate that with their shin angle based on the dorsiflexion, okay, and then we start looking at the, the left foot. So that's the back foot as I'm going to take off to my right. That angle, when I start actually creating force, if I were to have a straight vector or a straight line, it should go through my front shoulder. Because that's like a track athlete coming out of the blocks and it going from their ankle up through their hip, through their shoulders, through their head, right? So if we can get that, now we know we at least have a straight line of force going from that back leg to move the body to the right, to second base. Okay, now, if we can understand that, then we have to start looking at, all right, how does the front leg influence the back leg's force? And that front foot, a lot of people like to have the front foot turned out. And I'm saying, hey, if you know the rules, you can break the rules. As long as you know what that's doing, I'm okay with that. But if we can at least start them with both feet perpendicular, the rotational force of that front thigh, the thigh bone, and the lower leg opening up creates an action. That action gives a greater reaction back to the left leg. But if I start halfway open, it would be like I've dissipated 50% of that potential rotational force that feeds the back leg. So now, there's, there's other things that go with that, but just so I don't go too deep into it. Now knowing that, we can start to look at the athlete and say, okay, if you start open, you're gonna probably get your front foot down quicker and you're gonna get open to, but you're not gonna translate through space as far because you've lost the left leg reaction force that the front leg would have given had you started more closed and then allow it to open because the front leg can't do anything until the back leg's done pushing anyway. You don't want to use the front leg until it's there. So 
when my when my trainers or my interns start to see that it clicks now they're like oh okay now i see why we want to do that and then i then i always tell them look at you're going to get some athletes that want to use longer arm starts and they're going to rotate i said as long as they understand what it's doing and they're still comfortable with it and they still do it well i'm okay with that but start them with the basics first and then go from there I think what you said is basically you have this fundamental movement and then from there there's perturbations or there's variations outside of that that are maybe a little bit less important. And I know there's the whole thought now and I, and I like how they've put this together in a lot of the motor learning science, science that you have attractors and you have fluctuators and these attractors are, are certain things that you really need to be able to do to be successful in the movement um, and they need to be stable and then you have these other things that can maybe fluctuate or change and we'll see the same thing in say a throw where you know, the uh, amount of forward flexion or backwards flexion of the of the spine can sometimes be a fluctuator depending on if you're yeah. moving forward or backwards. And you see the same thing in a lot of the different speed movements. But there's still this fundamental capacity or movement quality that you have to be able to perform to be efficient in that. And I know you've uh, gotten a lot of uh, attention for your talk on stealing bases and talking about some of these different um, reactionary steps that or reactive steps that people take with a plyo step or a drop step. Could you cover those just briefly here so people have a little bit of an overview because it's becoming more popular but I think you're the one that's either really identified it or really popularized it um, out there in sports training but some people are still kind of in that um, older school thinking where the front foot is supposed to be turned open you mentioned and then the back foot's the one that powers through as opposed to actually taking a more athletic step and moving into the right. the base stealing right yeah yeah so what's happened is a lot of people are misunderstanding what a plyo step or what used to be called a false step still is called a false step is and they think the front foot is the one that's doing the plyo step, and it's not. If if it were going to happen, it would be the it would be the left leg, the back leg, as they go. But you, because we know we're going to our right for the most part. Okay, we could have to get our hands down and get back to first base, but for the most part, we know we're going to push off with our left and go to the right. If I get a wide enough stance, I don't have to move that left leg. I can just push down and away, just like I'm pushing in blocks when I'm a track athlete. The front leg does what's called a directional step. And so if, if we had high beams on my kneecap, my right kneecap, it starts out facing the catcher. And then as I push off my left leg, that right kneecap, that high beam, turns towards second base. Now what that does is that puts my, my hip my shin in a great angle to drive down and back as my body's moving that way. And that's the thing people miss. My left leg is moving my center of mass over that right leg. But that leg can now drive down and back. And then that starts my true acceleration. So we get a left side push, the right side directional step, which is turning in that direction. So it just means I turn that way as my left leg is pushing. And that's what allows me to push down and back. Now, 
an infielder going for a bunt, you're going to see them do a true plyo step where one of their legs is probably going to reposition behind them, and that's what allows them to project forward. That's a central nervous system parasympathetic fight-or-flight mechanism that has been given to us to protect ourselves as humans. Well, in sport, it's still a way to escape space and attack new space, and it doesn't have to be coached. We just have to clean up the mechanics of arm action or body positions, things like that. But in a nutshell, that's what we're looking at when we start talking about these terms. you got directional step, which usually that front leg opens while the back leg is preparing to move the body that way. And then a repositioning step or a um, plyo step would be when the, a, a leg moves in the complete opposite direction of the way I want to go to produce force that way so it can push me forward. It gives you the proper vectors. Yes. And it is really reflexive, like you're saying here. But a lot of times you see that individuals have almost been coached out of it. Yeah. Now, you can still get them to do it if you have them react really quick. But there's almost a conscious a conscious movement that occurs. Even in a game scenario, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. But when you really put the pressure on someone, they, they go back to the kind of reflexive way do you find yourself at all really having to coach that or do you just say hey we're not gonna we're not gonna coach it the wrong way anymore and automatically it starts improving yeah yeah i don't even have to what i do is i put them in a a drill or an exercise that i know that reaction is going to happen and then i just focus on the big rocks like i'm going to start focusing on making sure they're in the right position to start so it's more efficient when they do a plyo step or I'm going to make sure they have arm action correct, or whatever else that maybe is a little bit sloppy. Or, Max, and this is like you would know this, if, if they lack ankle dorsiflexion, and they're just tight, maybe they got a tight gastroc or soleus, or maybe they, maybe they just have an ankle joint that's a little bit gunky, and we give them some stuff to get some range of motion back, that cleans up a lot of it for them. All of a sudden, they're in better posture because... They can now push that knee forward, which allows them to be in a better position if that's what we want. So that's what I'll focus on. But the reaction was given to the central nervous system well before we even had any say as performance coaches. So it's just we might as well enjoy what they have naturally and support it. Question I have on that movement specifically that I've been thinking about, because it is a movement that we see in baseball all the time, and pitchers – Unfortunately, and I was one of them, they're practicing their, uh, their PFPs, you know, they're working on their fielding, throwing it over to first base and all that, but they're going through the motions. I was one who did that. You know, people are like, oh, this guy's no good. <laughs> Just because in practice I took it too easy, I guess I uh, – um, did the uh, Bo Jackson on it and just didn't work hard enough on it. But it was really something I missed out on because I could have been working on and actually training a lot of my agility in this in this practice. And so I see this particular kind of movement a lot, and I just wanted to ask you about it really quick, which is when they do that plyo step backwards, I see individuals, even individuals that have what I would say is adequate range of motion and maybe aren't particularly weak although you know we can always improve that they land in that kind of externally yep. rotated position with their arch collapse and i would say that's the most common yep. um flaw that i see from from that plyo step um how how do you work on that if you say all right they're pretty strong 
they have enough range of motion, but they still default into this uh, kind of lateralized position and externally rotated position. Yeah, we call that a T-step. And the T-step, again, much like the plyo step or directional step or any of the, the hip turn, anything of that nature, that's pretty natural, pretty organic. What happens is when an athlete T-steps, they actually gain more stability because they're now using more friction. So I have a size 10 foot. When I do a T-step, I have 10 inches of friction into that ground. My hip is externally rotated as well because the femur goes, so my hip, so I'm now more stable in my hip and it tends to translate because of the sling into the core. So we've actually created a greater point of stability when they T-step. And I personally think they do it a lot because it's a natural stabilizer of the body to be able to get friction and to be able to move off. Now, oftentimes if it's really quick and really short and not a lot of mass and momentum involved, sometimes you will see the vertical heel, like the foot, they're on the balls of the foot, and so my foot might be three and a half inches wide or three inches wide. Well, that's all I have for stability. I'm relying on a really good ankle. I'm relying on my Achilles ten, uh, tendon, you know, uh, using and absorbing and releasing energy really quick. But when I do a T-step, I'm much more stable. And I think that's why you see it in cornerbacks in football. You see the baseball guys doing it. Basketball mm -hmm. does it a ton. I think it just it, it gives them a greater support system when they have it on there, and they get external rotation up the chain. And it's a it's a useful strategy in a, in a lot of instances. But if that if that individual's got to accelerate straight forward, it's not going to be as quick as their plyo step. Am I correct in that? Well, it's still a plyo step because the the plyo step is the act of the foot going behind the center okay. of mass. So still a plyo step. But when they do the external rotation, what I have found a lot in, in many athletes, when they go with a vertical heel, sometimes what they do is they don't get as great of a, a translation off the initial push-up. Like it might be quick, but they didn't travel very far as where when they T-step, yeah, they push a little further. Okay, They get a little bit further because they have more stable footing and it allows them to get through their hip greater. They don't have as much wobble that could potentially happen with a vertical heel and only the front of their ball of their foot on the ground. So that's one of the things why I think it happens. I mean, we don't know for sure, but because for 32 years I've been watching athletes do that and I'm thinking there's a reason they keep doing it, even though in my early days I was trying to correct them from that and I got realizing that's something they just keep going to naturally. And I even noticed I did it myself, and I was more than capable of going vertical heel. But sometimes I just naturally go T-step, and I, it was just more comfortable. I just had more friction, and that was a comfortable act. Yeah, I'm glad I asked. And I have, just because I'm like, I don't even know what I would do to start to uh, correct that. I haven't even messed with it, which sounds like it's the, the right thing to do there. Exactly. And it's something that... You will absolutely see more in those individuals who just don't have the dorsiflexion to, to do that to do that vertical heel. But yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. That makes sense. You will definitely get more distance um, with that kind of externally rotated position. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe the 
the thought pattern is, in my mind, is give, try to, in different ways, give them more stability so then they have more options. Maybe they still use that step, but then they also have the capability or more capability to then use a verticalized uh, heel position as well just because, you know, you're doing different uh, stability training and now they actually have more movement options as well. Exactly. And think of this. And this is one way I've tried to explain to, to especially baseball softball coaches when they talk about that step because this is a conversation I've had a lot. When a baseball player or fielder or whatever, a lot of times when they throw and they plant, they don't have the back foot completely straight ahead like, like a track athlete, right? It's externally rotated a lot, okay? And, and, and a lot of that has to do with its rotation coming out of it, right? But if we looked and if we were to say, hey, well, why wouldn't we have our foot straight ahead if that provides us greater force and it's quicker? Why wouldn't we do that more often? So when you start thinking about how the body naturally adapts, I, when I used to teach my little kindergartners, first graders to throw, their back foot naturally just turned sideways and they created more friction and they would step and throw. It wasn't something I even taught them in the first stages. So it's sometimes there's just this innate quality that our human system has. It's almost like, you know, I'm not gonna touch that. I'm gonna let that one play out for a while. And if it becomes an issue, but typically it doesn't become an issue. This has been an awesome episode. What's one thing that you could leave the listeners with here that you see out of all of your work with multi-directional speed, agility, training for linear speed, what's one thing that, that you really want to progress forward that you see is still something that maybe coaches are lacking when, they, when it comes to speed and agility training? Because I know that just in the training that I've done, you can be a, a lot better in your warm-up and implementing some of this stuff. What's one thing that you see neglected quite a bit that you think that all athletes should benefit from and could be added to the programs of athletes that we're just not seeing enough of right now? It's a tough question. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good, very good question, though. I think from a coaching standpoint, I think one thing we want to do as coaches, and then I'll throw one out there for athletes as well, but one for coaches, I think, is don't be afraid to initiate your sessions once athletes have warmed up with more reactive stuff. See what the athlete is bringing today. Who are they today? What type of reactivity are they bringing you? Doesn't have to be high intense, it doesn't have to be difficult, but just make their minds read something, decide, and then act. And then what that's gonna do for us as coaches is say, ah, that athlete is on today. They're, they're hot today. Or you're going to say, nah, I don't know, they're, they're really, they're, as a group even, they're sluggish today. So that's how I always start off. Let them react. That tells me a lot of where the rest of my session should go. For the athlete themselves, I think one thing they have to focus on, and this, this goes across the board in most sports, be careful of how low you play if you want to be extremely quick and explosive, especially if you have to adjust your direction. Because athletes are constantly saying to me, oh, my coach keeps telling me to get lower, but I don't move really well. I know I gotta get better at it. I'm like, no, get higher, take advantage of the elastic energy that you were given, and use that to be quicker versus getting way down low, and now you're only working on power, which isn't as fast as elastic energy. So those are two things I like to tell my coaches and my athletes. Take advantage of things that are already there for us.
I love that. Thank you very much for coming on, Lee. You have a certification out for basketball coaches. If there's any uh, individuals who work from a performance setting or just a coaching setting with basketball players, where else can people find you and your educational materials? Well, thank you, Max. First of all, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I could do this all day. Um, but, yeah, I, so the basketball cert is if we go to basketballspeedspecialist.com, what it is, it's a way to communicate better with your players in, in the technical aspects of how to teach movement. And then if they want to, people want to find me, if they go to anything at Lee Taft, I try to put a lot of information out there so coaches are just constantly thinking. And, and it creates conversation for me, so I get to think, am I doing the right thing? And if they go to LeeTaft.com, they can pretty much find where we're at and what we're doing. And, uh, and if they reach out, I always get back to everybody. So, but thank you. Yeah, and I love following you on Twitter as well just because there's always a ton of great information that you're putting out. Thank as you. well as LinkedIn, and we were just talking about LinkedIn on the podcast that we recorded yesterday. It's not out yet, but LinkedIn is an awesome place to get some of the more technical yeah. information, and you're pretty active on there as well. Yeah. So yeah. check out Lee Taft on Twitter. Check out his website. you got to check out his certifications. I took one of them. It was awesome. It was the Certified Speed and Agility coach through the national sports uh, performance association so check that one out as well check out some of the new stuff he's doing it's phenomenal thanks again for coming on Lee. thanks max i appreciate you have a great one